God is doing some pretty amazing things in and through this church, and it's very exciting to see, it's very exciting to be a part of, and it's happening at, at all levels at our church, uh, through the children's ministry, through the youth, through the adults, the worship, discipleship, preaching. Uh, God is working in and through this church, and, and something that I'm really excited about is the ways that we are, we are really uh, taking intentional strides to reach out to our community and impact our community, Lexington, Davidson County, and beyond with the gospel of Christ. And in the last uh, couple months, uh, the leadership at our church, uh, you know, as we've thought about reaching out to the community and, you know, taking the gospel to all nations, uh, you know, we're a Christian Missionary Alliance church, and there are uh, multiple ethnic groups here in our vicinity, uh, here just in Lexington, uh, in our county, in our state, or again, in the country. And so the leadership really wanted, they wanted to get together a team of people that would really be uh, in charge of overseeing and promoting missions in our church. And so we're getting together a missions team uh, to really lead the charge in our whole church. This isn't just going to be the missions team involved in missions, but really paving the way for our whole church to really move forward uh, with even more intentional steps than we already take to be involved with missions. Now, we've probably made this distinction before, but I think it's important just to reiterate it because we hear the word mission used a lot, and we also hear the word missions with an S. So mission, singular, missions, plural. So to start off our conversation this morning, uh, I really, I just want to quickly kind of differentiate and define between those two words. So when we talk about mission, this is God's sending activity to bring fallen people from every tribe, language, nation, and people into his kingdom to worship him. So God's sending activity to pe bring people from every tribe and nation into his kingdom to worship him. Uh, when we talk about worship, the theological term is doxology, all right? So the whole point of missions is to bring people into the worship of God. So that's mission, okay? Missions is the church's efforts to carry out God's mission in the world by crossing cultural or linguistic boundaries, so we accomplish God's mission, the missio dei, if you want to get fancy, use the theological Latin term. We accomplish the missio dei through missions, all right? So when we're talking about missions, we are talking about crossing cultural and linguistic boundaries in order to bring the gospel to those of a different culture or of a different language than us. And I really, I wanted to define those uh, to really kind of help us when we talk about this idea of God's mission and missions in our church. Now, if you are interested in being involved in this First Alliance Church missions team, uh, next week after church, we're gonna, we're, there's going to be a meeting, and uh, I'm going to be heading that up, and we're going to talk about, you know, what is this, what is it going to look like, you know, if we want to be part of this missions team you know, what are, what are the things we're going to kind of do? So after the service next week, we'll meet in the library to discuss it. That is open to everyone. We want this, this team to be as, there's no limit on the number of people that can be on this team that's going to help us really move forward and promote and overseas missions here at First Alliance Church. 
And so with that being said, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, we're trying to start this missions team. Uh, I'm going to be heading that up. You know, I have two weeks. Well, I want to preach on missions and mission. Why not, you know? And so uh, I have an interesting kind of thought question for us to think about that as I was reading one of my uh, books from college, because I was a cross-cultural studies major at Tacoa Falls College, which is, which is missions, and so I'd cracked open one of my missions books in the last uh, couple weeks, and at the beginning, they kind of raise a thought-provoking question. It's this. What if Jesus never gave the Great Commission? What if Jesus never explicitly said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Or, and that's said in multiple different parts in the Gospels and even in the Acts. What if Jesus never actually gave us that explicit command? Would the church still be responsible for taking the gospel to all nations? Now, this is not to negate by any means the Great Commission and Jesus' command to go and do these things. But even if he did or did not say these things, would there still be justification for us to bring the gospel to all nations? And this is really what I want to talk about because we ground mission and missions not just primarily in the commands that God gives and specifically what Jesus gave at the end of the Gospels, but actually, we ground it in the very nature of the triune God himself. God is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one being. And so we ground mission in the very nature of God because, because of this, that God the Father is a missionary father. God the Son, Jesus, is a missionary son. And God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a missionary spirit. So within the Trinity, we have the grounding of mission, because God himself is a missionary God. So, the obligation to bring the gospel to the nations is rooted in God's very nature. And that's what I want to I talk about this morning. And this is really the common witness we see throughout the scriptures, all right? Now, there's a ton of places we could go. Uh, I want to start in Psalm 117, okay? So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Psalm 117. And really this, this mission of God bringing people into worship, into the into doxology of Him, uh, is very well summarized in Psalm 117. And you'll notice uh, Psalm 117 is very short. Two verses. It's the shortest psalm and actually the shortest chapter in the Bible, And this is what Psalm 117 says. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Amen. Done. Right? That was a nice, short, sweet scripture reading. Well, I wanted to bring us to this passage um, really as kind of a central point to show us that God is all about bringing the nations into worship of Him. That is the end goal of missions. Actually, uh, John Piper, 
famously said in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, which is very influential in this discussion of mission and missions. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Because the nations do not worship the triune God, missions exist in order to bring people into the fold of worship in God's kingdom. Okay? And this is, we see this all throughout the scriptures, and I think Psalm 117 is a good summary of this. And there's a, another uh, famous missiologist, one who studies missions, his name is David Bosch, wrote a big, big book, um, and he said something, he said this, Mission has its origin in the heart of God. God is a fountain of sending love. This is the deepest source of mission. It is impossible to penetrate deeper still. There is mission because God loves people. And so this mission and this act of sending people to the nations to bring them into the fold and and missions, the, the, the work of the church to bring people into God's kingdom is grounded in God's very nature. And so... Uh, I want to look at each of these, uh, each of the persons of the Trinity and their involvement in the Missio Dei, missions, all right? So uh, these are some big words I'm throwing around, but you guys, we can handle some big words. I always tell the youth, I'm like, don't be afraid of big words, all right? They are, they are helpful and they can condense and summarize stuff for us. So from the very beginning, we see God the Father as a missionary father. You know, we see at creation, God creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, and they're in harmony in their relationship with one another, with God, but then we know the fall happens. And the first thing that happens, right, is they put on fig leaves, representing the separation in human relationship, and then they go hide in the trees. Now, from this, from the very first sin, the very first break in relationship between humans and God, we see God the Father's missionary heart. Because what does he do? He comes to them. He goes to them. He seeks them out. He finds them to draw them back into relationship with him. You know, he says, where are you? God's omniscient. God's omnipresent. He knows all things. He's everywhere. He knows where they are. But he's giving them an opportunity to step out back into relationship with him. And they are hiding in the trees. They are, they are lost. They're in the woods. They're in the waters. So by definition, they cannot find their own way out. They cannot save themselves. And so God himself must come to, must go to, must send himself to Adam and Eve to bring them back into relationship with him. So from the very beginning, the first thing, we see God's missionary heart. And then in Genesis 3.15 we have what's called the first gospel, or again, a fancy Latin term, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And this is already, from the get-go, there is a plan, God has a plan to save his people. And that is... Jesus Christ himself. This is a foreshadowing of what we're going to see on the cross. All right. Go ahead. We're going to be flipping around a lot. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 10. Now, for those of you who know Genesis 10, you're probably freaking out right now. You're going to say, are we seriously going to read all these names and whatnot? Uh, No. I just want you to stare. 
Just stare at Genesis 10 and all those different names and peoples we see there. Genesis chapter 10. These are the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and as, they, as they spread out into the world, we have it recorded here, and each section ends the same. You know, it starts off uh, talking about the descendants of uh, Ham, and, or no, sorry, Japheth, and then Ham, and then Shem. And, but they all end the same. These people spread out by their clans and languages and into their territories and nations. And the last verse, uh, Genesis 10.32 summarizes it all like this. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So here we have the dispersing of the nations. Now, Genesis chapter 11 actually happens before Genesis 10. Genesis 11 gives us, uh, you know, what happened. Why did, first of all, where did all these languages come from? Because there was one language to start with and why did they start spreading throughout the earth? Well, Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel, which uh, many of you may know, where, you know, they're, they're all speaking one language. They so let, let's make a, let's like, let's make a name for ourselves, and let's build this big tower so that we can, you know, reach up to the heavens. And the goal was to, to, to reach God, essentially, to build a tower so high that they would be with God. Now, the irony is, is God says, all right, let's go down, meaning they couldn't build a tower high enough to reach to God. They couldn't build a bridge back up to God because of their separation. So God comes down and he says, you know, we're going confu- to confuse their languages because, like, imagine, pretty much, imagine the evil that they could do if they all spoke one language. So God, you know, they, they start to talk and they don't understand each other, and then there are certain groups that, okay, we can understand each other. So they start to spread out. And this is where the nations begin. The nations are now dispersed throughout the world, speaking different languages and in their different cultures and these kind of things. And so this is, uh, this is a big issue in terms of God bringing people back into relationship with him because now you have all these languages that are separating people and all these cultures that are separating people. And whenever you read something like Revelation uh, 7, 9 through 10, where John says, After this, I looked up, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches out in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So how do we get from Genesis 10 and 11 to Revelation 7, where you have the nations dispersed to all the nations worshiping God together. Before I get into that, do you know how many languages are spoken around the world today that we know of? 7,151, according to Ethnologue, which is like the leading research center on languages. 7,151! I can think of like 20 off the top of my head. And these are just the languages that we know about, and these are just the languages that are currently spoken, so not including dead languages like Latin, right? And so think about this grand picture of, of all these different tongues, these different languages before the throne, before the Lamb, worshiping God together. 
So how do we get from the spreading out to the coming back together of the nations? Well, Genesis 12, we see God's missionary heart even more. That there's, there's a plan that he sets in place. So I just want to read these first three verses of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in order to bring the nations back into worship of him, God chooses Abraham and his family, which eventually comes the people of Israel. But here's the thing. It was never just about Abraham, or at this point, Abram, or the people of Israel. That very last verse, all peoples or families or nations will be blessed through you. And so the whole purpose of choosing or electing Abraham was to reach the nations so that they would worship him, right? Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. The whole purpose of Abraham being chosen, of God really sending Abraham and the people of Israel was to bring the nations back into the fold of worship of him. And so Abraham now gets sent to a foreign land, continuing this theme of God's mission or sending activity. Now, we don't have time to look at all of God's sending activity in the Old Testament, all right? But let's just, I just want to list off a couple of different things that we see this, all right? So God sends Joseph to Egypt to save his family. God sends Moses to Egypt to save Israel. God sends the judges to save and deliver Israel. God sends kings to lead and rule Israel. Prophets to call Israel to repentance. He even sends angels at times. He sends John the Baptist to pave the way for his ultimate missionary, the sending of his very son. And this brings us to the second person of the Trinity, God the missionary son. Now, when missionaries go to another culture, uh, they, they try to take on that culture as much as they can. So this means learning the language, uh, learning the way that the people live, eating the food that they eat, uh, participating in community events that they have. And so the whole purpose of a missionary is to really to get into the, really to get into the mind, into the life of the people that they're working with so they can begin to understand them so that they can better minister to them, so that they can share the gospel in terms that actually make sense to that people. Well, talk about crossing some major cultural boundaries. The divine becoming humane, human. The infinite entering into a finite body and maybe even more mind-blowing, the holy entering into the common. God taking on human flesh. Talk about crossing some, some boundaries in order to bring about salvation. That the incarnation of Jesus is the ultimate missionary action. And so we see the missionary heart in Jesus the Son. Now, 
in the past, when it comes to uh, missions, there's a couple like different models that have been uh, enacted to try to reach people with the gospel. So there was one called the, that's kind of been labeled the extractional model, where missionaries would go and uh, they would start to, to share the gospel with people. Um, and they would actually kind of bring the people out of their community and have a, uh, really bring them into like the missionaries community and, you know, and share the gospel with them, maybe teach them English, these kind of things. Um, and people did get saved through this method. Uh, however, the thing was, is because they were taken out of their cultural context and, and weren't really ministered to where they were at, uh, they were not as effective in sharing the gospel with their own people. So this is what was known as the extractional model, which, again, people got saved and the gospel went forward through that, but it wasn't the most effective way. And so they started to think, well, this is what's been called the incarnational model, where we enter into a people's community and we take on their language, we take on their their clothing, all these different things, in order to try to learn about them and, like I said, to share the gospel in terms that makes, makes sense to them. And so... Think about Jesus doing this, entering into our cultural context as humans in general, uh, and, and being able to relate to us, going through temptations, sufferings, trials, just like us. Uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful model of what it looks like to, to cross cultural and linguistic boundaries in order to bring about salvation to the nations. Unbelievable, unbelievable. And, and we see this, John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus was a sent one. He was sent by the Father, and he understood that he'd been sent for a purpose. And so, again, like the Father, the missionary Father, we can't possibly talk about everything that the Son came to do, that he was sent to do, but let's just highlight a few of them. Now, in Luke 5, uh, after he calls Matthew and has, has dinner uh, at his house and the Pharisees and the scribes are getting upset, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And at the end, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I have come to call sinners to repentance. And then in Mark 10, where James and John are asking Jesus, hey, uh, who's going to sit on your left and who's going to sit on your right in your kingdom? And Jesus, you know, starts telling them, uh, whoever wants to be the greatest among all of you guys has to be the servant. And he ends by saying this, the son of man himself didn't even come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus understood that he had been sent for a specific purpose by the missionary father as the missionary son in this world. And then the ultimate one that a lot of us know, John 3, 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And a lot of times we don't keep going to 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but rather to save the world through him. And so, I mean, we see this. I mean, I hope you're seeing this. God, in his very nature, is a missionary God. And although Jesus was primarily sent to the Jews, the Gentiles or the nations or the non-Jews were the most responsive to his message. 
We see people over and over again who were non-Jews proclaiming and and worshiping him. And so we see this is more than just about Abraham's descendants. And in fact, the whole point of Israel existing as a nation was to obey the laws that God had given them, the commands, and see how God was blessing them and they would give glory to him. And then the nations see this and would want to be a part of this. And this is why there was such severe judgment because they were putting the salvation of the nations in jeopardy. That is a serious, serious thing. Now, ultimately, God is sovereign over all things and he's going to get his mission done. But the people of Israel, there was such severe judgment because they were supposed to reflect his very character by following his commands and his laws. And ultimately, we see Jesus knowing his purpose as a sent one. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, not my will, but your will be done. He understood that he was one sent on a mission. Not only that, he was also a sender. We see him sending out the 12 to proclaim the kingdom of God. We see him sending out the 70 or 72, whichever manuscript has the correct number, being sent out to proclaim the kingdom. Go, I am sending you like sheep among wolves. And after Jesus risen from the dead, so he sends out his disciples, uh, and after he's risen from the dead, he appears to them and says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then Luke gives us some more information about this encounter. It says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So not only does Jesus send his disciples, but then in Acts 1-8, this power that he's talked about, we see is, is the Holy Spirit empowering them for witness to the nations. So Jesus, God, the missionary son, sends his disciples to be his witnesses. And the scope is the nations. So that Psalm 117 would come true. That the nations would sing the praises, extol the Lord with all their soul. The scope was always about more than just Israel, just more than just about this one people. It's about the whole world, all of the nations. And so the missionary son who was sent and also sends his people with the father now sends the third person of the Trinity, the missionary spirit. The missionary spirit. Now, have you ever had to wait for something for an unspecified amount of time? Like someone says they're going to give you something or give you a call. Maybe it's a job, right? You're waiting to hear back for a, a job and you're waiting, you're waiting, and they say, you know, we'll get back to you. They don't say, we'll get back to you within a week or it's just, we'll get back to you. So it's like, all right, 
I'm still waiting, you know, I'm waiting for, you know, whatever. When is this, when is this uh, relationship going to be reconciled? And there's a bunch of different things that we can think of. Am I ever going to get better? And so there's this unspecified amount of time waiting. And every day when you're in that situation seems like an eternity. When will it end? You know, and every day maybe it's like you start losing hope that there is going to be an end to this. This is going to be my existence on to the day that I die. I'm never going to hear back. I'm never going to get better. These kind of things. Well, when Jesus tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem to receive power from on high, he doesn't specify how long they're going to have to wait. He doesn't tell them, you know, it's going to be a week, it's going to be just tomorrow, send it tomorrow, next week, month. No. He says, you wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power from on high. And, I mean, you think about the disciples, you know, okay, they start, they get together and they're, they're praying, they're fellowshipping, they're worshiping, and then the next day they do it again. And again, and it's, I mean, again, I have, this is like pastoral speculation we do sometimes. Um, I don't know what they were thinking, but maybe it's kind of like they get together and they're like, is it, did it come yet? Is it, when is it going to, is it today? Is today the day? Is tomorrow? You know, when is this gift from the Father and the Son, when is the power going to come upon us? To carry forward the next phase of the Missio Dei, the Holy Spirit is sent from heaven 10 days after Jesus ascends. Now, that doesn't seem long to us. 10 days ago, not super long ago, hey, if someone told us 10 days from now, you know, not too bad. But they did not know when the power was going to come from on high. So it doesn't seem that long unless you're the one that's waiting, right? And this is a dramatic experience that the disciples start speaking in languages that they didn't even know to the point that people are like, these guys are drinking too much wine. And Peter's like, it's 9 a.m. They're not drunk. And I don't know like what they're thinking. I I don't know if I've ever seen anyone who's been intoxicated able to start magically speaking another language coherently. And so when the Spirit comes, you know, they start speaking this language. And it says in Acts 2.5, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. And then after that, it starts to list where they're from. There's people from the north, people from the south, people from the east, people from the west. Nations from all over the world are here at Pentecost, at this time where the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is sent, and they start to speak in the languages of these people that they don't even know. And so we see this, this massive moving forward of God's mission. And Peter stands up, the one who betrayed his Lord, who was a coward and three times denied him, stands up and pretty much says, not pretty much, he says, you killed Jesus. You killed the Messiah. Very condensed version of his sermon. And they say, they're cut to the heart. It says, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. And you, 3,000 
people entered into the kingdom of God to worship him forever that day from all these different nations. And so we see the mission moving forward that God supernaturally empowered these disciples to speak languages they'd never spoken before, crossing linguistic boundaries to carry forward the mission of God in the world, to reach the nations, to bring them into his kingdom so that they worship him and they're in Revelation 7. Beautiful, powerful, the missionary spirit. When the missionary spirit's present, things happen. The rest of Acts is really the Acts of the Spirit. You know, we know it as Acts of the Apostles, but whenever big things happen in Acts, it says the Holy Spirit, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, or this happened, the Spirit, and we see the gospel moving forward. We see uh, Peter and Stephen empowered for bold proclamation and witness of the gospel. We see the Apostle, or Saul, becoming the Apostle Paul, and then him and Barnabas being set aside by the Holy Spirit to be sent into the world to send to the nations to proclaim the gospel. We see the heart of the missionary God in the heart of the missionary spirit. And actually, the spirit also is the one who empowers the, the scripture writers. He sends us the scripture through his people. And the same spirit resides in and with us today, yes. which is fantastic and powerful. And the only way that the mission can be carried forward. And we're going to talk more about the missionary spirit uh, next week. But as we wrap up this morning, we can clearly see that the biblical witness is that the Missio Dei is not just a command given to Scripture or given in Scripture to the people of God. It is that, 100%, and we need to be obedient to it. But even if that command was not given... The Missio Dei, the mission of God, is rooted in the very nature of the triune missionary God. This is why theology is important. When we understand who God is, it helps us to better understand who we are as his people and what we are to do in this world. So God the Father is a missionary father. God the Son is a missionary son. And God the Holy Spirit is a missionary Spirit. And this has huge implications for us, the church, does it not? If God is a missionary God and his people, the church, are to be imitators of him and we are his people, that means we are a missionary people. And notice I did not say we must be a missionary people. No. By the nature of being God's people, we are a missionary people. The church is a missionary church. If a church is not involved in the mission of God, it is not the church. And so we are a missionary people. And I'm, we're going to talk more about that, what that looks like for us as First Alliance Church in Lexington next week. So God's mission is seen in his sending activity to bring fallen people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue into his kingdom to worship him. And he accomplishes his mission through missions, the church's efforts to carry out God's mission in the world by crossing cultural and linguistic boundaries. And I want to close with this story. 
Between my junior and senior year of college, uh, I had to do an internship for my major. And so I had the opportunity to go to Indonesia. And I was there for two months. And while I was there, uh, I got to see a lot of different uh, work that was God, God was doing. I was on uh, four different islands while I was there in a bunch of different cities. It was, it was incredible just to see the different ways that God was working in Indonesia. And I'll never forget, well, a lot from that trip. There's one thing. I was, I was at a, uh, actually an alliance seminary or Bible school in Makassar, Indonesia. Now, the thing about Indonesia, it's the largest populated Muslim country in the world. And there's mosques everywhere, and, you know, five times a day there's these calls to prayer over these, these loudspeakers, these megaphones. And the one day, um, I was out on the balcony because I was staying in the dorm with uh, some of the Indonesian Christians who were there for the summer, and there was a mosque right across from the, the Bible school. And over the loudspeaker, I hear this beautiful, beautiful voice. Uh, it, it sounded like a young boy, maybe elementary, may, maybe like early teens. But he had a beautiful, incredible voice and uh, was, was singing in Arabic. Now, uh, in Indonesia... Arabic is not the main language, Indonesian is, um, but the Quran was given in Arabic, and so no translation of the Quran is truly the Quran, only the Arabic version, which is very different than the Christian Bible. And I started to think, I was like, man, that is such a beautiful voice. And I was like, Lord, I pray that one day that beautiful voice will worship you. I have no idea who that kid was. I have no idea where he's at. I don't know if he's still singing over the loudspeaker at that mosque. But my prayer was, Lord, I want him to be there in Revelation 7. I I want Psalm 117 to to be true for him. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Jesus, thank you for this time we have together to gather as your people. God, we thank you that you are a missionary God, that you you came to us, Lord. You are the one that sought us out. You're a missionary God. And I pray that the richness and depth of that truth would just sink into our souls and really cause us to to think and ponder what does that mean for us as your people, as your church? And what would it look like for us to truly be, to truly be a, a missionary church as your people? We love you, Lord. We thank you for your patience your, your graciousness towards us, and pray that you continue to use this church to reach the nations with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.